Welcome to the Who's Your Mob podcast. This is James Henry, and I got to have a bit of a yarn with Jamie Marlou Thomas of Wyabba Wadak fame. We were just out the back of Melbourne Museum having a bit of a yarn with the birds chirping, the mosquitoes buzzing, and it was great to get quite a deep insight I felt into his practice teaching traditional dance and also Wyabba Wadak which is quite an interesting practice and I won't give away too much, I'll let him speak for himself. But yeah, definitely something to keep an eye out for as there are more and more practitioners around the country doing a lot of great work for community and beyond. I should give mention to the music that's playing underneath. This is Dave Arden and the tune Kukatha Gundijmara Clan and he's going to be playing at the Loman Hotel in East Brunswick on Friday the 15th of December 2017 and if you're liking these grooves then uh, it's worth checking out online or getting along to the gig so for the next hour and a bit I uh, hope you enjoy my chat with Jamie Malu Thomas Pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the Kulin Nation, uh, the, the neighbouring people of the Wurundjeri and the Boomerang people uh, inhabited this area for thousands of years, their ancestors, their elders, past, present and emerging, um, but also I want to pay my respects to your mob too, Bruce, um, right. and the lands in which you're from because, yeah, I think that as Aboriginal people, I think it's really good to just to take that little bit of extra time to, you know, as we always do with Aboriginal people, we always, who is your mob and, you know, where you're from and you know, pay those respects. So I was born up in Far East Gippsland in a little place called Orbost. That's the, the Scottish name for the township, but the traditional name for what that town is called Dura. Uh, it's of the Krautungalung clan area, so that's one of the clans of the, the Gunai, or the Gunai, or the some people say Kurnai. Um, that's that, that classic G and K argument yeah. or debate. But if you really, me personally, I roll both the, the G and the K together. Yeah. The Gunai, so it's not a G or a K. It's what I believe that the traditional sound would have been, as that opposed to a, yeah. a European. And I'm sure that you've heard of Gamilaroi and Camilleroy, yeah, and you know, yeah. it's the biggest, biggest arguments. And so a lot of our mobs say Gunai Kurnai, and that's okay. And a lot of people say Kurnai, and some people say Gunai. And so yeah, I think that you know I like to um, obviously uh, look. You know, my my background is to to dig dig as deep down into our past to get some of the truths out that have been taken away and hidden. So, you know, that, that word Gornay is, you know, was for me was an important learning tool. Um, so that's where my, my father and my grandfather and um, I was born up in that area, but one of my grandmothers uh, was an Austin from, from down at Framlingham and um, and people commonly say Gunichmara. Um, we, we are the Mara people, that was Mara was the Aboriginal word for our mob. And Gunich means belonging to. So, you know, when one of the early settlers, who, what, what's your tribe, mate? <laughs> the Aboriginal person said, yep. I'm Gunich Mara. He was basically saying, I'm from here. Yeah, okay. So, our nation was divided into language groups. Uh, Pikwurong, Kirewurong is one that's often get, gets talked about. Jawadwurong, um, Chaparong, and um, Konkopranut, which is another language group that's uh, between Chaparong and Pikwurong. So, those are the language groups, but um, then those language groups are broken up into clan areas, I guess, and you know there's 90 odd clans um, just in our 
just in our language group area. So um, yeah, it, it can become quite complex as opposed to just saying like back in the old days when I went to school, everyone was just curries, you know, curries. Yeah. And um, it was, I was at a, when I was a park ranger and I was 18, I was at a, a statewide, I was actually a national wide Aboriginal ranger um, meeting and um, I stood up and said, oh, I'm, my name's Jamie and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a curry from Warbus. And this fellow jumped up and he shouted across the table, you're not a curry, you've got to stop calling yourself curries. So that's our word from our country. You know, go and find the uh, <laughs> Uncle Albert Mullet. All, right. <laughs> all right, sit down, sit down. Yeah, we know, we're gonna, we know, all right. But we use that word, that is a word that we've used, you know, for a long mm. time in Victoria. And I, I think that there's been a, you know, obviously a real push for, for people to get back to their, their own identity when they actually, you know, I don't think not, not many people say query anymore. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually tempted to <laughs> go back and use that a bit more. Yeah. I was, yeah. Born and raised in Sydney. Yes. Although they would use it a lot there. Yeah. Well, they, they use it a lot. Of course, they use their own mobs' names. Like there's a lot of Wiradjuri and Kamilaroi mob, you know, coming down yep. from country towns in Western New South Wales. Uh, also coming down from uh, you know Bunjilung and Gumbangi uh, mobs. So growing up in Sydney my whole life and not having much connection to my grandparents' mobs, which are, you know, Gimilroi, Yorta Yorta, Ewan, then it's kind of hard for me to say that I'm Eora, because my mob's not from there, and it's hard for me to say that I'm Gimilroi, because I ne never grew up on country. And now I'm living in Melbourne. So I'm kind of, I'm this city urban black fella with family connections to certain parts, but my personal connection to country is, you know, through the city. Yeah. So that's a mosquito flying around you. Yeah, uh, you can uh, get my back if there's any yeah, mosquitoes flying yeah. around me. We'll see how we go. <laughs> there's some bracken over there, so we'll be all right for itchy bites. Yeah. Yeah, so so you grew up in uh, Gano. Gano country. Country. Yeah. Uh, but then you, your mobs, you know, Kuninchmara. Yeah. So then I guess if you have connection to country, is that to the Gunditjmara or? Yeah, we, I was having this conversation with my cousin the other day and I think one of the things is, is that, you know, when, when we, we know that we can be aptly connected to um, other countries through family lines and especially more so obviously with Stolen Generation, you know, like my grandmother was removed when she was about 14 and taken to Gippsland. So that wasn't a traditional arranged situation, okay. which, which, which used to happen. The, the Gunai people used to come to Radri and Boomerang country and steal their women's and and to keep the bloodlines, you know, not too close. Yeah. So, you know, there would have been some intermarrying both by stolen but also by, by arrangement um, through through ceremonies and things. But so I always I always say that I'm Gunai first and foremost because that's my birth country. But, you know, going back home to my grandmother's country and um, having both my children being born there, I definitely say that I'm, I'm connected to that place, mm. you know, I mean, we, I mean, we just, you know, when we go back through our family tree, we can, I mean, you can go back in all different directions and, um, you know, I was talking to my nephew Dixon, who, he, 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 he and his mum and, and aunties and that, they have a really um, strong interest and knack in family trees, you know, and we can, you know, we could say we're Wathorong too through our great-great-grandfather, you know, like when you intermarry and stuff like that. Yeah. And I know for me now, like I'm living, I'm living over that way on, on Motherong country. I won't say that I'm Motherong because um, that's not my birth country or that's not where 
um, you know, I've been living long, but I do feel a really strong connection on that land because now that I'm living on it, that's the cellular memory, not both in my body, but also in that land that acknowledge that energy that, that the mother wrong ancestors have walked on. So uh, yeah. I, I'm not a big fan, I, I personally, and it's okay for, I, I respect other people that do it, that want to actually put their hand up and, and go back 10 generations of all the different intermarrying and that's fine because you actually do know that's important but it, you know when it comes to the crunch and someone says well who do you who do you who do you say you are you know I do I say I'm gonna even though I speak more in my grandmother's language and my children's language I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more au fait with with that language because I, I spent nearly 20 years down there I mean I spent 20 years in Gippsland but from a cultural journey perspective um, it was you know I really started to to really sort of find my, my my cultural, my traditional identity when I moved back home from Alice Springs. Yeah. Back at, back on grandmother's country. All right. So I'm just thinking from my perspective, yeah. you know, born and raised in, I, I guess, around Balmain, Leichhardt area. Yeah. It was quite a concentrated uh, area where I grew up as far as I, I didn't move that much from where I was born. Mm. And I was born and raised there until I was, I was 26, I moved to Melbourne. So, I don't know, would it be fair to say that, you know, through that reasoning that, you know, I could be Eora? Oh, look, I, I think that that land, you know, I think that, that both that community and that land can, can claim you, you know. I think that that's the other thing too, you know, that's the most important thing as opposed to self self-acclimation but I think that's that's important that you associate with that because that is where you're born and I'll, thankfully when we say that you know I both my children actually it wasn't it wasn't planned that they were born in Warrnambool you know on their grandmother's or on their great-grandmother's country um, or you know obviously I was born up at home on country so that, that I suppose is a, is a benefit for when I actually want to identify. But yeah, look, and, and it's same as for people, same like you're saying for people that are not who, you know, who are, well, who say they're Gunich Mara, but they've probably only been down to home probably two or three times, mm. but yet they say they're Gunich Mara, yeah. which is okay. You know, I mean, for me, it was that I actually had to go and move there and I had to live on country and I had to learn from my elders for me to truly understand that culture, but also that landscape, because that's, that that's for me was the biggest thing for my identity was was my my physical connection and the cellular memory but also the sites of the areas that my ancestors went to that was something that I just I, I just said to my partner when we live in Alice Springs I've got to go back to Warrnambool. So you yeah you specifically moved there for yeah, that for that reason connection. Yeah, I met Uncle Archie Roach for the first ever time in um, in I was in Tennant Creek and I was watching I I, I was oh yeah probably about 20, 20 years old and. I was watching um, Uncle Archie's up there with only Ruby and, and, and Buster Ray. Ray was playing bass for them. And when they said, oh, it's Buster Thomas on bass, I'm, I said to my partner at the time, I said, oh, I wonder if he's related to Dad? You know, because Dad was Arthur Thomas. And um, she said, go and ask them. I said, no, no, because I, I don't like humbugging famous people at all. You know, like, I don't know, say anyone famous could walk through that door, I wouldn't run over there and get a selfie with them. I'd just let yep. them be themselves. Um, so yeah, Uncle Archie, you know, I walked into a, the art gallery the next day looking for Ray to have a conversation and Annie Ruby just grabbed me and said, oh Archie, Archie, look here, look here, it's Arthur's boy, it's Arthur's boy. Uncle Archie came over crying, oh, Arthur, Arthur. I'm like, no, I'm Jamie, I'm his, he's, oh, no, you're his son, you look just like him. And, you know, and because him and dad were first cousins, 
because Uncle Archie's mother and my grandmother, Dad's mother, were sisters. Yeah. They were Austin's from, from Fram. And he said, you know, what are you doing up here? I said, oh, look, what I'm looking for, I couldn't find down at home, which is that real, the old connection, the old ways. Yeah. And yeah. that's why I moved to Alice, was to, to, to get a bit of an insight into those really old ways. Um, and um, he said, when you, when you learn what you learn, you should go home, take it home. Mm. And, um, you know, some really, had some really, really strong conversations with some amazing people that sent me on that journey back to, back to the Western District. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, and uh, as they say, the rest is history. But, yep. um, you know, that was in 90, I think it was 92, 93, we moved back in March, 93, back to Warrnambool from Alice. And, um, yeah, there were some, some really amazing cultural things started to happen from there back in 93. Yeah. So you grew up in Orbost with your mother. Yeah, my non-Aboriginal mother. Yeah, did you have much Aboriginal contact with my contact? family? Yeah. Not really. Um, when up until probably the age of probably six, um, after mum and dad only had a brief liaison, and I was the, the result of that, and so dad wasn't around. But mum, mum was only sixteen when when she um, had me. She turned seventeen in the hospital, but. Um, she knocked around with the mob a lot and she ended up having my sister to my dad's cousin and then she hooked up with a couple other black followers and we lived on the, the, that bungyanda, we lived at Lake Tyres for a bit at the mission. Um, that, that guy she was with was, was a pretty dysfunctional relationship, very violent and um, uh, one night <laughs> coppers come and removed us from there because some stuff went down. and. You know, they basically said, if you if you come, ever come back here again, Jenny, you shouldn't be here. You're white. But basically, one of the coppers said, you're better than this. You're white. You're better than this. Mm-hmm. And if you come back here, we'll take Jamie away from you. So we we went um, and, you know, lived on other parts of Gippsland. And, you know, um, yeah, my mum had my sister to um, my dad's cousin, but then... Uh, when she was born, she lost a finger and couldn't change her nappy. So we give my sister to an auntie to look after. My mum's finger got better, but it took over 12 months for them to graft it properly, and they eventually took it off because they couldn't they couldn't reattach it. You know, that's back in the 70s when they're trying to. You know, there was a finger most cut off with a broken stubby, and they're trying to stitch it up. And I remember seeing it going, "That's oh. you know." And, and they eventually just said, "We can't do it," and they took it off. And by that time, my sister had, had, had bonded with my aunties, and she basically stayed and grew up with them. Yeah. Yeah. So my mum hooked up with a, a non-Aboriginal fella, and you know, I had two kids to him, and that back in those back in those times, in those early years, it was pretty dysfunctional, lots of alcohol, lots of abuse, and um, so yeah, that was you know. And then when I got older, and you know, I ran away from home, uh, that uh, quite often when I look back now, in my younger years, up until twelve, you know. So we left the we left the mission probably about when I was about six. And from there, for the six years, we lived in a small country town called Club Terrace. Um, we lived in a lot of timber towns, Bem, Bem River, Club Terrace, Cabbage Tree. Um, and there was Aboriginal people always coming through. And they'd always, they'd always know who I was. And they'd always have conversations with me. I remember my, my grandfather's brother used to always um, dig me down the street of Orbost. I was a little kid on, the, on his push bike. The old push bike with the upside down turn handlebars and he'd have the sock tucked in. And Uncle Hobbs, his name was, and he'd never talk. He was, real, he was just real one of those quiet fellas. 
and um, it always take me to the top pub and buy me a raspberry. So there was, there was, I guess there was community always knew who I was mm. and they always watched over me, I guess. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until I started to get involved in um, sport, but probably more when I was 15, I wanted to become a park ranger. I had some amazing people like um, Robert Bundle. He was working at Parks Victoria, as we call it now. Uh, Colin Mullet, Robert Farnham, who is a cultural officer um, at Mooji Aboriginal Council. You know, they they paved the way for me to to start getting contact, not just with the community, but with cultural heritage through site management. And you know, so every year, you know, in high school from 15, 16, 17, and then 18. Um, I left school and got a job as an Aboriginal Ranger. I, I did all my work experience and, and went and worked in community and stuff like that. So, and I had some really good people around me that um, that supported my, my growth. They acknowledged that there wasn't, you know, my dad wasn't around and, um, you know, I needed to be made sure that I was a part of community. So I'm mm. grateful for those people in my early years that, that, that kept that relationship there. Yeah. But in saying that, you know, the, my mum's brother, he was a bachelor and he looked after my mum's mother, my grandmother, my other grandmother, and he was an old white follower and, you know, he provided, and when I ran away from home from the abuse and stuff, he provided a really safe environment for me for um, probably for five, five years before he passed when I was, just before I turned 18 and, you know, um, he always encouraged me as a white follower, he always encouraged me to be proud of my Aboriginality, always. Mm. Yeah. Always, he said, "Don't." And he used to say it back then. You know, don't, don't focus on the negative stuff. Focus on the positive stuff that your people are. Yeah. You know, proud, proud people of the land. He used to say, "He said, don't you ever forget that." And I guess because he had a lot of contact with a lot of the old fellas that used to work on the timber mills and used to work on the, the, the roads, this country roads board. And he said they're always the hardest workers, and he said they're always the proudest people. And he said that's, that's the, when people are being negative and nasty. Just remember what I told you about, about your people. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was never any, that's not who you are or, you know, that sort of stuff. So I was, I was very lucky that, that that was never hidden or tried to be taken away from me of, of who I was. Um, so, yeah, that sort of sent me on my journey, really, about, you know, it wasn't so much the community that I was I was interested in and family. It was the old ways. I don't, uh, from the time I always tell a story, I tell a story of the first ever time um, way up in the back of Gippsland. About eight years old, I actually saw a hairy man. I saw a dulaga way up on up on the hill. I used to always get told, "Don't go up there." And uh, one day, I just found myself up there. And from that day, I always knew that there was something. All them stories that they used to tell, there's truth in them, and that they still exist. And that connection is is, is only um is only broken if we choose it to be broken. Yeah. You know? So that's that's why it's been always my passion to. To, to revive and, and breathe life back into the old ways because I think that, you know, you're not the, the oldest or one of the oldest continuing living cultures on the planet for, for no reason, you know. So putting those structures back in um, has been really important to me. And, and getting assistance from some amazing elders along the way has, has been so integral in, in helping me to, to be where I am today. Mm. You know, honouring those people who, who spent all that time and pass that knowledge on and and did what they that that they're born to do and that's pass it on yeah yeah and then you went up to alice for a bit anything particular that drew you there yeah look i think the opportunity obviously you know you you, you know that when you grow up you hear 
uh, you know, you always hear that you know there's no black fellas here in in this town. It's, you know, they're all gone. They're all they're all dead. They got shot out. It's like, well, I just got called a black dog out there. So what? Am I the last of my tribe? Or you know, one minute the, the textbooks are saying we don't exist, and outside the community says we do. So um, you know, and then when I started asking questions from a lot of my elders about the old ways, about initiation ceremonies, about you know the, how to do this, how to do that, and uh, you know what's the story for this, or how to, you know. A lot of my elders were like, oh, sorry, Neff, we can't, you know, we didn't get taught that, it wasn't handed on. Um, that's when I, I had the opportunity to, to go to Alice. And I knew that I was under no guise. I knew Alice, Alice was the mob. What I saw, that they were so they were so much worse off than us, but they were also, when you scratch the surface, they were also so much better off than us in, in certain ways. You know, I think that when I moved up there in the, in the early 90s, it, um, and probably a lot hasn't changed, is that... You know, they're still a hundred years behind us in a lot of ways from the racial discrimination perspective, and um, you know, so there's still a lot of that that disconnection just only starting to happen. And you know, so but when you scratch the surface and you start to hook in with people and they start to take you and show you stuff, you know, some of the old ways and the old processes. And um, I had I had the opportunity to go through law when I was about 20 and. Um, after talking to Uncle Archie, I didn't do it. Also, you know, that gives you a very strong sense of responsibility to that country to be mm -hmm. a part of those ceremonies continuously. And I just wasn't sure that I, I was up for that yearly journey back. Yeah. Um, and and my, my one of my, well, the lady, uh, she adopted me into her family. She said, it's important if you stay that you go through, but if you don't, that's okay. You know, because these, these men won't see you as a man when you're driving around and you're trying to work into those structures so you know I talked about to her that I was after two and a half years I was ready to head home and she was fine with that and um, there was two boys up there that were working with me they were in there like 16 17 they turned 18 just before I left and they got got a car and that and they used to always stick up for me you know because I used to get used to get trash talked by some of the, the mob on the town camps you know oh you're southern one you're nothing one you know you're funny color one you're no culture one and Brett Brett and Cedric, they used to always say, oh, James, you're going to come law business with us and be a man and you're going to come and clean you up. And, you know, and, and they used to always stick up for me, which was good. And um, it was amazing because that was in the early 90s. And then 2001, you know, after moving home, it was about eight years later, um, the Yipperinia Festival was on. Um, I don't know if you ever went or you heard about it, but basically it was the, the celebration of Federation. And um, they... They put on a, a big robbery in Alice Springs, and there was like 42 communities from across Australia were represented, and um, there's over a thousand traditional dancers from all over Australia. We, I, I put together, and it was amazing because when Victoria was asked for a delegation, um, I, I think it was only Joy, I think at the time, actually said, "No, we should nominate the Western District Mob. They, they, they actually getting their stuff together, and they got the whole community dancing." So we, we actually took 30, 35 dancers from Western District up to, um, um, up to Alice Springs. And in 2001, that was a big dance group. It's not anymore. When you've seen a fortnight, we've got about probably 65 kids dancing <laughs> next, next week. Um, so yeah, but back in the day, 35 from, from Warrnambool to Alice Springs, moving them around was a big deal. And we had the second biggest dance group um, represented in, in Australia at that Crobbery. And I took some, I took some boomerangs. I made some boomerangs, like the traditional clapping ones, because I knew that's what them old men used to use. So I made a gift for them, 
and um, I talked to Uncle Banjo Clark and Uncle Rob Lowe about what I should design on them and they give me some designs from home. And um, we started, the dancing started at, at 10 o'clock in the morning, the quadri started at 10 o'clock in the morning and we didn't actually dance until 10 o'clock that night. So for 12 hours was just, the, the Arunda people, they, they did a, a welcome and then everyone else did an acknowledgement to that welcome. Mm. As there was a classic, okay, everyone's only got one minute to respond to the welcome. Nah, not even. <laughs> Them old fellas, they dance and sing for half an hour for the acknowledgement, you know. Mm. And tr good luck trying to get them off the stage. So, yeah, we didn't get on until uh, 10 o'clock that night. But we were the, the second last dance group. The Ngarindiri people were the, the, the last dance group. And um, it's a funny story. I, I stopped, before we danced, I stopped at Crobbery and Uncle Max Stewart, Kumajay, when he was alive, he come up and he goes, what's wrong, boy? And he'd been sitting there all day. He said, what's wrong, boy? I said, I've got this gift for you, Uncle. He said, what for? I said, for dancing on your country. He looked at me. <laughs> he said, there's been 40 other dance groups come through here all day. No one brought a gift. You brought a gift? I said, yeah. I said, I learned a lot from living on your country. I said, this is only a little tiny bit of giving back. And he stopped the whole crobbery and said that at 10.30 mm. at night. Yeah, right. We've got a lot to learn from these Victorian mob, he said. Yeah. He said, look at their dance group. Five-year-old kid right through to 65-year-old elder. Women, children, big mob from his community. You know, and that made me proud. And Brett and Cedric, they, 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 were, they were the only two young men painted up with them old men. You know, them all them old men in their 60s and 70s, those two 20-year-old followers, they were the only two young followers. And when they saw me, they had the biggest smiles. Yeah. And when we walked past them, they looked at me because I was painted up with all my mob behind me. And they were so proud for me. You know, they said, oh. Brett said to Cedric, Cedric, Jamie's got his culture back. Yeah. yeah, they were so happy for me. Yeah, and then when I could get up there and sing in my language and my dances, they, they were so happy for me. That, yeah. that, 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 that my identity that, that used to get trashed talked, <laughs> I put back into place. You know, and they were happy for me. And that was, yeah, that's probably the, apart from the birth of my children, <laughs> um, that was, that, that, that time and that moment was, yeah, it was pretty special to have, to go that full circle stuff which was really special for me. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, that, that for me is the stuff, what, what, what I pursue, I guess. Yeah. And the songs and dances that you did from Gundi Jamara country, yep. where do they come from? Were they written and, and put together for the performance or are they recent or do they go back to before when white people got here? Look, the, one of the amazing conversations I had with an old follower up in, um, it was just out of, um, out of Catherine. We went up to the Barunga Festival, but the Barunga community was closed down for sorry business. They ended up having the festival at Catherine. And um, cut a really amazing story. It's really short. This old follower pulled me aside and he said, where are you from? I said, off Malice. He goes, no, where are you from? <laughs> so from the saltwater country down south. What you doing up here? Anyway, I had a good yarn. End up, he, he, he apparently he fought my grandfather in the boxing tents down at Lake's entrance when he was with Jimmy Sharman going around. Wow. He thought he thought I was my grandfather coming to give him another yeah. <laughs> When he saw me walking up the street, he said, "Same age, twenty. He said, "Oh, twenty when your grandfather gave me Iden." Wow. <laughs> he said, "I thought that was him coming to give me another one when he saw me." <laughs> and that, that's that same as my dad. You know, my my dad used to train with Uncle Jack Rennie and. Uncle Lionel and um, this old fellow who used to train my dad used to always call me Arthur all the time. He said, oh, you look just like him. But yeah, so when, when he said to me, 
He said, why are you here? I said, to learn culture and all that. And we talked about initiation. And he said, he started laughing. He goes, why don't you go home and learn it? I said, I can't find it. No one knows it. He said, he told you that? I said, oh, my elders. I said, the teachers. He started laughing. And he said, this is what you need to understand. He said, your culture is in the land. Your connection, your, your, your respect, the way you see everything, that's your culture. And he said, do you think our culture's been the same for 80,000 years? He said, do you think our dances have been the same for 80,000 years? I'm like, oh, fuck, I don't know, maybe not. He said, no. He said, he said, he talked about the Spencer Gillen story about there's a dance that came in from Queensland 500 years ago and the mob at the telegraph station that did that dance, the Arunda people did that dance from Queensland. They'd lost, actually lost the meaning of the words, but they still knew the, the, they still knew the words, but they didn't know the meaning of it. It's yeah, 500 right. years old. Yeah. It's been given to them. It's been gifted to them. He said, do you think we've been the same for all that time? We've lived through ice ages. Our land has changed, how we, how we see it, what we experience. He said, it's, it's a daily thing. He said, yeah, there, there, are, there are stories from the start that we continue to tell and sing those stories, but other parts of our culture, you know, he said, a, a ceremony, you know, and that's what he always said to me, the ceremony that we do is that, that serious ceremony, there's a sorry business ceremony, there's the, there's a celebration ceremony, there's the get together stuff. He said, that's the stuff that you can go home and sit in your country and bring it back to life. Mm. He said, because he said, no white fella can tell you that that's wrong. He said, if an anthropologist or an archaeologist says, oh, no, we, we, it's been discontinued and you don't know them and, you know, rah, rah, He said, who, who, who are they to tell you what your culture is? And he said, if an Aboriginal person from your country tells you it's wrong, he said, you politely ask them the right way. And if they can't tell you, then how do they know what you're doing is wrong? Mm. All right. So I went home and when I say I went home, went home back to the grandmother country, I had amazing people like Uncle Banjo Clark and um, had you know, spent time with him, but Uncle Rob Lowe, Uncle Ivan Cousins was just starting to, to reinvigorate the, our language back then. You know, I was lucky that in the early 90s to have them, them, them elders, even Uncle Henry Alberts, you know, I'll, I'll, they used to call him Uncle Licorice. He, he you know, used to tell me the old stories. And so what, when I sat down and talked to them about this conversation with this old fella and started to put I guess the stories of what I saw in the landscape into dances, that's where those dances come from. So when we do the eel dance, like the whale dance, they, they, from, they from actual stories of my experiences, what was told, what was constructed. So those conversations with the elders in the community about those, those things, about the landscape, about the, the shooting stars, about you know putting putting together the pieces of both white follow journals, but also elders' knowledge, yep. and talking to them. Does this make sense to you? Do you think that's what the old people would have said? Nah, they just told them kuni just to get them off their back, or no, nah, no, nah, that that sounds right. Because when they say that sounds right, they say no, that feels right. Mm. That feels right. So when you hit, when you when you read some information, ask yourself, does that feel right? Yep. And then, then you start to have the conversation in a broader context. And then that's when the culture collectively becomes a part of a, of a community. Then people start to take ownership over the revival of it. Yeah. Yeah. So then you had to find the language, the Gunajimara language for these stories and, and write yeah. out. 
yeah. songs. Yeah. So in the early days, you know, we were grammatically trying to work out the structure because, as you know, our language was spoken differently than English. But even just singing the the individual words and 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 it's not so much the 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 word that was spoken, but it was the intent of which the word was spoken and the meaning behind it through your your expression of how you sing it is, is what made that connection of, of of telling the story about it. So for me, putting those together was, I don't know, I've been very lucky, I guess, that I've, I've always felt as though I've been a bit of a conduit to keep culture alive in, in our community. And, and along the way, I've had, some, I've had to fight some demons of my personal life to, to navigate through that. And I've really only, and I'm 45, and really only in the last three years, I've, I've started my upper up and, and really finding myself that I've really aligned the stuff that I'd be wanting to align with, with, with who I really am. And that's been amazing because that's not just, you know, what people see out in community. That's also who I am. You know, I struggle with a lot of stuff for a long time. So when I started to put them songs together, um, and, it, and it's quite amazing. Um, I had some young fellows come to me the other day, and they they they, they want to start them on that same journey about weather wrong stuff. They want to start putting some stuff together. I said, well, let's get all the families together, have a conversation with them, and. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll look at putting, sitting on country and telling them stories. Yeah. You know, so the stories, they're, they're always evolving. And, you know, um, uh, it's, uh, I, I could probably say it's a bit like a writer's block. I, I, I haven't put a, a new song together, although I am, I am putting a song together for, for um, an Aboriginal lady who's getting married on the weekend. I'm, putting a, I'm using language to sing a song to them. She asked me to do the acknowledgement at her wedding and um, uh, one of the gifts I was going to give her was, was to sing a song for her and her partner in language. Yeah. So we talked about that mixing traditional in a modern con context. Mm. That's probably an example of that. Yeah. So wasn't there anyone else on Gundij Murray country that was doing language and song and Uncle Ivan, no, not, not, not song and dance. It was really funny. When I come home and I wanted to put a lap lap on and paint up and run around, they're like, what do you want to do that for? They're like, what do you want to do that for? We don't do that anymore. And I went, why not? <laughs> I said, that's who we were. If that's not who we are. I said, well, who says? I said, I, I want to make sure that them old people's ways weren't lost with invasion. You know, I said, I'm sure they would be wanting to see us paint it up, doing a crubbery rather than going to church. Surely that's what they would want. Yeah, so weren't there even traditional dance groups? Not in not when I went back to Warrnambool. Yeah. There was none there. And and one of the other things that I flipped on his head too was I stopped, in the early, early days we used the Yiddiki, I stopped it. When yeah. I started to read about who we were, that's not who we were, we're going to start singing our language. That's that's the replacement for that sound. Mm. You know, so I, down at home at that time, so, and, and it was funny because it was about a group of three or four young kids that we... Um, started to dance and it just started to build up, build up and then, then the girls wanted to dance and it was really funny because, you know, um, I said to the women, well, who's going to teach these girls to dance? Oh, no, we're too shame. And so then I started to teach them and they said, you can't teach them this women's business. So good, you come and teach them then. So they had to step up, say Vicky Cousins, mm. Marnie Adeline, stepped up, started teaching them and, yeah, and then after that, but in the early days, you know, my cousin Brett and John and, and Crispian and a few other men, they, they said, 
we, we never got this opportunity to do what these boys are doing. You know, they're all in their twenties. Mm. Can we do some dancing? Not for, not for NAIDOC or community, but just for ourselves. Yeah. So I used to take them out to Framlingham, and we used to do it as men, out in the bush. Yeah, right. So they could do it, because they wanted to do it, because they never had the chance when they were little boys. Yeah. So, you know, it was about, and that's probably where what what we do now in our foundation is to create a space that men can do that. Now we've got a 70-year-old elder who's stolen generation. He, 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 he sits in our program, he says to these boys, oh, I never had the opportunity you had. And now he paints up. Yeah, right. In the last two years, first ever time. Yeah. And he said, just, I feel complete, you know? So it's about making sure that you create a space that they can do that. For me, I only get to see traditional dancers, well, at least down here, dancing for openings and for, I guess, audiences, and, you know, whether it be you know, for Blackfellow events or for white audiences. But I guess you get to take some of the boys out bush where there's no audience, like people are dancing for themselves. Is that a different experience? Are you doing different dances? Bit of both. Bit of both. We we acknowledge that our culture needs to be shared, and I think that's one of the things we want to yarn about. But we acknowledge that our culture needs to be shared, so that they one one that they people get an understanding of it, and understand it that that it still exists. I mean, that was one of the biggest things was, you know, people didn't think that it existed, and I guess by and part of it, it really sort of never was only you wheel it out at a particular time of the year, as opposed to living it. And that's the one of the things I wanted to make sure that the kids that I'm teaching now understand that that. that They've got a responsibility ceremonially to their ancestors to continue their culture for, for, the, for, the, for the continuation of the culture. Um, otherwise we cease to be the oldest living continuing culture on the planet. And, us, and also it's for the land. The land needs us. It needs us. It needs, our, it needs our collective consciousness. It needs our thoughts. And then it needs our actions when we go away from that. So absolutely, I, when I came home, that was one of the biggest things, you know, going back in 25 years ago, was that dancing out on country, for country, for us, was the most important thing. Mm. If, if boys wanted to go off and start a dance group, and I, I've been one of the biggest, see me at the MCG, I'll get up and, and I'll share it with, with a worldwide audience. But uh, I enjoy that. But the most enjoyable is when we go out on country. I don't know if I'd, I asked you, but next, next fortnight, um, not this weekend, but the weekend after, a third year boys, it's their final final ceremony for the three year process. And mm. we're going back to Garywood. Um, you know, you're, you're more than welcome to come, not to, not to photograph it if you don't want to, but you're more than welcome to come and sit in that space. Yeah, if nice. you've got a tent and a swag, you can. Yeah, that no, sounds know, amazing, yeah. You know, if you want to. Um, and, and it's about, again, it's about sharing that with other Aboriginal people who've never had the opportunity to do that. Um, was, I, took a, I took some boys from the eastern suburbs up to Gippsland one time, that same sort of program, probably about eight years ago. Um, and this, this fella, he's an Indian fella, he was a youth worker for the mainstream youth service. He, he, we did a sort of a joint camp, he come. I said, look, there's going to be times when we're going to do blackfella stuff and we'll have to leave you at camp and there'll be times when you can see it. And there was a few times we went away and he still was like, what are you, what are you, doing, what are you doing up there? What are you, you know? So no, it's just business stuff, you know, cultural stuff, talking to the boys, what are you, what are you teaching them? And anyway, I spoke to one of the elders and I, I said, look, is it all right if Adrian and I can't remember the other guy's name comes and watches the ceremony? And they said, yeah, that's fine. So 
So the boys spent like three hours clearing a space on the banks of a beautiful river, the Timborough River, flows through Buckland. It's just middle of nowhere and it's just bush everywhere and they cleared a sandy, there's this sandy spot there, made a dance ring. And these boys had never never painted up, two of them had painted up out of the eight and only ever done a crobbery for an ADOC event up in Shepparton. Anyway, so I stripped them off and I started to paint them up and Adrian said, he's sort of sitting on a log watching it and he said, as soon as you lit the fire and as soon as you pick up that ochre brush and you started painting them boys, they went from these giggling, nervous, little unsure kids to these young warriors that were standing there ready to receive that ochre from mm. that they gathered just up the road from, from where we camped, from my country. And, and when I put that ochre on their bodies and sung that song, and he said, then when they danced, he said, he said, I couldn't explain it. He said, it was like, when you call in the ancestors, it's like they came at your command and they went into those boys and those boys danced those dances like they'd never danced them before. He said, oh, he said, I've done youth work all over the world. He said, I've been to Mongolia, I've been to Africa, I've been to Native Americas, I've been to China. He said, I've never, ever seen anything like that. Hmm. He couldn't speak for about an hour and a half after the ceremony. I went up to him to say, hey, bros, you're right, you know, because the boys finished up. I finished, closed the circle, put the fire out, they jumped in the river, had a swim. I walked up and he just went, and he just walked away. <laughs> he just couldn't, he couldn't speak. And anyway, he come back later and he just, he just, he had to just unload. And he said, now I understand what you do and why you do it. Mm. He said, but I've never seen that before. I said, that's just the connection that we have to this land. And that's why it's important that we do it this way. Yep. And how do you go about teaching the dancers? Is there a designated rehearsal process and do they have to learn the songs? Do, do they sing along as well? Yeah, look, there's definitely one of the things that we we provide for the kids. And when our, the, the processes that we run, they they about culture inclusive. It's not just dance. So they, they learn the non-material aspects of culture, which I don't think it's taught enough. Um, they learn the respect, responsibility and accountability. You know, respect of land, respect of self, respect of women, respect of elders, respect of kids, everyone. Um, and the concept of accountability and, and responsibility, you know, and, um, you know, and they, they, they were things that I, I struggled with in, um, for a lot of years too, to, to, to stay aligned with those principles. You know, so I really had to clean my act up because when I started to reteach them again, I was like, yeah, well, you know, I'll, I'll look in the mirror and, you know, can't be a hypocrite. You know, if I'm going to teach those things, so when we teach, when we call when, what we call is processes, we we're trying to stay away. We try and we try and stay away from the words of programs, and we try and stay away from the words of of performances or practices because you're going to have dance practice. No, we're actually just going to 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 conduct a ceremony. This is you know, so I suppose using Western concepts of we need to practice this before we actually go and perform it. You know, we just need to familiarise ourselves with this ceremony before we actually conduct it. Mm. And that's, you know, putting those conversations in the place also gives it more meaning. So when, when we, these boys that have been through this three year process, they haven't just learnt dance, you know, they've learnt the, the stories about the stars, they've learnt, you know, they've been out on country making, making tools, they're, they've learnt about art, they've, they've, you know, we've done some language stuff. And, you know, I guess one of the things is that we have a lot of kids that are from all over Australia, all over Victoria, some are from different parts of Australia. And a lot of people say to me, oh, you can't teach them your language, that's not their language. They can't learn that. I say, why not? Oh, that's not who they are. They should be speaking this language. I said, well, are you going to teach them? 
Mm. Oh, well, I don't know. I said, well, I said, what was told to me by my elders? I said, all the stories that I'm teaching them, that, that I'm actually required to give to them. Because isn't it better that they have an Aboriginal story and an Aboriginal language than none at all? Mm. I said, they all walk around speaking the invaders' language. Are you happy with that? They all sing in the invaders' songs. So wouldn't you rather them have an Aboriginal language that they're allowed to speak until they find their own? Yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Yep. And that's, that's the thing, you know, that's the thing for me. I, I had an Aboriginal person tell me that, that worked for a quite a prominent organisation to deal with kids. And I said, you can't teach that kid that language, he's not from there. I said, but he, he walked around speaking English. What, you happy with that too? <laughs> Are you going to teach him his language? No. Are you going to take him home to his family so they can teach him? Oh, but we can't. Uh, well, I said, I, I, I've been gifted. Like We use one young fella um, as an example. He's not from our country down there, but he grew up down there. We made sure he had all that language and had all them stories. We told him about where all those sites were because we didn't want him to go to places that he wasn't supposed to go to. That's, that's a responsibility. Mm. And we always say that when we, when, we, when we go through these processes, it's a sharing space. It's not a teaching space. I share this. And if, if people want to share their stories and their language with me, they can. And obviously you only share what you're allowed to. So it's, it's not a space where you come and just get indoctrinated with, with Pequodong or Kirewodong language or Gunich stories or Gunai stories. It's, it's just me sharing. If you want to share and teach things, so the little kids, head, shoulders, knees and toes, they all sing that in English. I taught them in, in Pequodong. Another lady says, oh, I'll, I'll get the words from Yorta Yorta. All right, next week you come and teach it in Yorta Yorta. I'll get the Gano words. I say, how good would it be? they all up there singing in, in, in Aboriginal languages rather than Chinese and English and Italian. I mm. said, if they want to, that's good. But surely it's, you know, so they're always, they're my philosophies. They're my yep. philosophies around culture. You know, share what you can, and if there's stuff you can't, the sacred stuff, then obviously you don't share it. Yeah. Without the, the appropriate permission and processes. And how is it if you're singing Gundi Jamara songs on other people's country, like, do you have to go through certain processes? Look, the way I see it is, is that definitely you, you speak to, you know, people that are there and get, and get the initial permission the way, the way I see it is that, you know, I mean, I'm, the, I'm a bit like you, you know, I, I moved here in 2008, it's nearly 10 years since I've been here. Um, you know, met Wurundjeri people, met Boomerang people, and they all, they un, unequivocally said, you've got permission to, to do your culture of my country, you know, and especially because you ask permission. And you'll always meet individuals that say, you can't do that on my land. You'll always be people who will, that for whatever reason, whether it's personal or, their own agenda that'll say no but yet and especially in a, such a multicultural space of Melbourne okay well you go and shut down every other culture that's practicing their culture on your country and then I'll, I'll stop doing mine yeah <laughs> you know like you've got to contextualize a little bit so yeah definitely you should ask you know um, and, and and you know and like I said there's some amazing people um, that that have supported you know me continuing to um, share my culture in this space, you know, just just like every other person shares their culture, yeah. whether it's Christian or Muslim or you know Buddhist or whoever, 
you know, such a multicultural space. Yeah. But yeah, I think it is right that we ask as Aboriginal people, just because no one else does, doesn't mean that we shouldn't. Yeah. And then what are your feelings to extending that to people without Aboriginal heritage? Again, I think it's about just, you know, one of the things I never do, you know, people say, can you do, you know, and that's where people have to get it in their head, the difference between a welcome and acknowledgement. Obviously, I'm not from here, I'll never do a welcome. I'll always acknowledge the traditional custodians on behalf of a room, and I'll always ask whether there are any traditional custodians in the room, you know, and give them the opportunity to do it, because that's the rightful thing to do, not just get up and assume that there's no one there. Um, So when I teach, when I share, when I share my, my knowledge and my stuff that I've been given permission to share, um, yeah, I, I, I do it in a way that, you know, there's stuff that I don't talk about and there's stuff that I'm allowed to talk about. Um, you know, it's the same as dancers. There's dancers that we dance that we don't, we don't share um, publicly and obviously there's dancers that have, that have been put together for public sharing and space. So. Um, I think that it is, you know, that's why, I think things like Tandurum are great, I do, I really do. Um, I haven't been a part of it, and I, I would I would hope that they would actually do that for themselves on country, their mobs, and I'm sure they do in, when they do their practices in lead up, they probably do a, what is the White Files would call a full dress rehearsal, but same thing for themselves, you know, I think that that's, um, I'm sure they do that. Um, but yeah, I think that is an important part of one, showing the international world that Southern Victorian Aboriginal culture is still very alive and thriving and, and still is very much a, a remnant of what our ancestors look like. Because that's always been my bugbear, is that the word culture gets thrown around a lot. And that's okay, because culture is a lot of things. You know, you can have a, a motorcycle riding culture, you can have a bingo culture, you can have a soccer culture. You know, and I guess I, I, I get a little bit, I get a bit concerned for the old ways when people say that this is culture and we talk about the evolution of culture and we talk about the the changing face of culture and I think that's a healthy thing but 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 I always say to my young people please please don't forget the roots of which our ancestors practice culture so it's those values and and it's those those connection practices and you know for me it's the basics of barefoot on ground with ochre on body you know I, I wear I wear a possum skin parangi I don't wear a, a lap lap haven't worn a lap lap for a lot of years. Um, a lot of all the boys wear them. The third year boys have just made their kangaroo skin ones now. So one boy said, I'm not even going to wear a red lap lap under it. I'm just going to wear that. That's good. That's how the old people would have done it. I said, but put some jocks on though. <laughs> I have bush I'm not. I said, that's okay. But if you're in the school, put some jocks on. But yeah, so they get it too. That, you know, for me, culture is, there is an evolutionary process. But like that old fella said to me in Catherine, just make sure it doesn't get too far from what it originally looked like because mm. then it doesn't there's no it is culture but it's not a part of that old ways you know yeah so i think that's the balance that people are going through of that that eclectic mixing of of the old ways with the new ways me i'm old school i, I like to do it the old way mm. you know i don't want that to i don't want it to ever be forgotten mm. i think it's all good that they're mixing hip-hop with it or they're, they're singing songs in it or they you know, I think that's healthy and that's great but just don't forget them old ways as well mm. that's, that's what keeps you grounded and connected I guess going back to what you said about how there are all these different cultures here and different languages being spoken I guess in school you know people will be learning French or Japanese or whatever 
then what are your feelings about non-Aboriginal people speaking languages of the country? Again, I, th I think with, you know, I, I mean, my, my, my limited understanding of the Wurrung language, it being introduced into some of the schools, and, you know, obviously the, the school up at, um, at uh, North Northcote, where they've got Wurrung being spoken there. And I think that's actually been taught by a non-Wurrung person with the permission of the, obviously, of the Wurundjeri people. Yeah. So I think that if those processes are put into place, I think that's a good thing. You know, again, you know, I, I, I keep, I keep, I always use the analogy of, of the Maldives. You know, the Maldives make the Pakia learn their language. Mm. They make the Pakia know their culture. It can only strengthen it and make it more resilient. When you've got them people on your side and they're speaking your language, those two things, it reaffirms that they respect you as the traditional custodians, but also makes Maori people learn their language too, because they don't want Paki out there speaking more language than them. Mm. And I think that my understanding with talking to some people, I've had Aboriginal people say to me, nah, they, 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 can't, they can't learn it, why not? It means I've got to go and learn it. Well, why don't you want to learn it? Nah, I couldn't be bothered. True. <laughs> That's what a black fella said to me. I was like, all right. <laughs> you know, I know I'm not the best at it. I know I could be doing a lot more reading of um, and, and more, re you know, resurrection of my language. It's all there. The only person stopping me now is me, not not mm. not the government, not a white follower. You know. Yeah, you do hear sometimes people saying that they don't want white people to have the opportunity to practice culture before black followers do. But then black followers sit on their hands. Then so it's a bit of a catch twenty two, isn't mm. it? Yeah. Hopefully that that encourages black followers to actually go and do it. Yeah. Otherwise, and otherwise, you know. And then what about traditional dance and ceremony? Only, only with the permission and in the presence of Aboriginal people. That's what yep. I say. Yep. So if I teach, if I share space with a non-Aboriginal person, and we've taken, we've taken non-Aboriginal people back to country, and we've painted them up, and they've danced in our community, I say, but this is the only time we do these dances. Mm -hmm. under, our, under our guidance, I don't want to see you over in America painting up, saying, oh, Jamie, give me this dance dancing around, no, that's the difference. Mm. They got permission to do it in this space. Or if they're with other people, other Aboriginal people, so if they go to New South or South Australia and those people said they can dance with them, I say, yeah, yeah, then you can share it. Mm. You can tell them about it. I said, but not, not, not outside that. Yeah. I think that's the respectful, the respectful space that they can hold, mm -hmm. is that they can do it in the presence of that. And that's, that's, that's why we, you know, I suppose we're going to get into that yarn, but um, that's why we invented Boyapa. Because it it's, it's about understanding a cultural relationship without teaching culture specifically. So when people come into a Boyapa session, they learn a series of movements that aren't particularly traditional. They, they connect into all uh, the things, the kangaroo, the hunter, the gatherer, um, the, the eel, but they, they even know that those, you know, the eagle, but they're done in a movement, not in a dance. Mm. You know, if you saw, if you got a little white kid here and he saw a, an eagle flying and said, right, copy that eagle, it, it, it'd copy an eagle just like you'd probably dance it. Same as that eel in there. How would you, how would you mimic that eel? You'd probably go like that or like that. That's what we'd do. Yep. So that connection stuff, 
is is same but it's the then you start to chuck in the the, the music and the singing and the language and the, the purpose of it and the story behind it and the ceremony that's what makes it cultural as opposed to just doing it as a kid doing it you know yeah right so that's the contextualized for me that's how i see the difference so when people do wayapa they're connecting into the element not the culture mm. and if i want to share them a story about the eel i'll share them a story about the eel if i want to share a story about the sun i'll share a story about the sun yeah can you tell us a bit about wayapa well first of all what it means what wayapa work and yep. and how it came about yeah so wayapa work is is the the formalized practice that that we've put together so it's a, now an internationally accredited and recognised modality with the International Institute of Complementary Therapists. Um, that was that was accredited about three and a half years ago. At, at the time of accreditation, it was the only known Australian Indigenous um, modality that's been registered with the International Institute. And I think probably the only known Indigenous worldwide modality. A lot of Eastern um, philosophies and Eastern practices that are registered with the ICT, but. Um, at the time we got a bit of paper saying it was the, the first of its kind so it was pretty exciting to put together a practice and a process that we could actually share. So Waiapa Wurruk is two Aboriginal words. Waiapa, uh, waiapa um, is the Pikurong language for connect or join so it's a loose translation of being connected to something or sharing space or energy exchange and Wurruk or Wurruk Wurruk is a Karnai word that means earth, land. Yeah. So it's about connecting back to the earth and the philosophies and principles, we, we, we teach it from uh, an environmental perspective, first and foremost. So you, can, you, you share it in three ways. You can share it as an environmental collective. So, you know, if I was to say to anybody that walked through that door, what, what does a creator mean to you? And if you ask 20 people, depending on their race, religion, creed or belief, they would probably give you 20 different answers, some might be the same. Oh, the Creator is God, or the Creator is Allah, or the Creator is come from the stars. He was a Scientologist, you know. Like, so the Creator is just the Creator and the energy. So I don't tell you why, but doesn't tell you what the Creator is. You put your own connections to the Creator. Then we do the Sun. What does the Sun mean to you? Oh, it's lovely. It makes me feel warm, you know. So when we talk about the Sun, we we teach about the the actual cycles of the Sun. One of the stories that I share is of the, the Stonehenge. You know, it's a stone arrangement built on the sun cycle. The Wurdi Yuang property, the, the Wadarong property, the, the stone arrangement, is about archaeological observation of the sun, the solstices and the equinoxes. You can talk about, you know, so you can share it from a personal perspective. Jeez, I got up the other morning and saw the most amazing sunrise. And someone said, yeah, I saw that one too, yeah, yeah. So you start to share what the sun means. So when you go through the 14 elements, about what they all are doing environmentally and how they're keeping the earth in balance. The moon, we talk about the moon. So when we, we, when we do the moon movement, it's about the, the cycles of the moon. It's about the 28 day cycle. It's about the new moon. It's about the waxing moon. It's about the full moon. What the full moon does, affects all the tides, affects all our water in our bodies. Then you start to share the story about the word lunatic. That's a Latin word. Lunaticus, mm -hmm. which means affected by the moon. People start going, oh yeah. So some people, if you're in tune with that moon cycle, you'll be in tune with your own emotions, but everyone else around you. So you start to look at, Wayapa is about looking at the environment and how it affects you. So when you talk about the rain, a lot of people say, 
freaking raining, it's raining. <laughs> I said, well, what if it didn't rain for 20 days and the rivers dried up? Oh, that'd be terrible. So then you should be, you should be pleased with the rain. When it rains, good one. When the storm, people panicking around, oh, it's meant to happen. So Waiapa is about teaching your, your awareness of the environment. And then the last three, so we go into the air element. So the 14 elements, you know, talk about, you know, the wind, the rain, talk about the lightning, the importance of lightning for the planet. So it teaches us all these environmental connectivities of what the, what the elements are doing for the earth and how we're benefiting from that. We go into the, the, the sky element, the air element, we talk about things that fly, the land element, we talk about all the things that live on the land, and we talk about the water element, fresh and salt water. Then we talk about the hunter and gatherer. And we talk about the concept of, not necessarily even an indigenous perspective. So at some stage of evolution, all people on this earth lived like our ancestors did. They were hunters and gatherers and they respected the land. Might have to go back a couple of thousand years, maybe even 10,000 years in some countries. But they lived like our ancestors did. So when I talk about the hunter and gatherer, you talk about the roles and the skills and the, the necessities that they, they did to provide for their families. And in some cultures, the hunter was a woman. Some cultures, they went out with bows and hunted boars, you know. But also about just, you know, like if me and you went out hunting to get a kangaroo and we saw some berries, we wouldn't say, oh, we can't gather those. That's a gatherer's job. <laughs> Quick, run back and grab auntie to come and like, shit, wow, well, yeah, pick them yourself. You know, if they saw, if a kangaroo jumped through camp, they wouldn't just let it jump through. They'd get their digging sticks out and take it out. You know, yes, there was very clear roles at times, but it didn't mean that out of necessity, you didn't cross over. Um, and then the last element is the child. So the last element of Waiapa is the child. It is the whole, the whole purpose of why we're here. So the hunter and gatherer pass on all that knowledge to the child that's relevant. They tell them about the seasons, they tell them about the creation stories, but they also tell them about how to interact with that, that environment so that they can go on and continue that. So Waiapa is about our own well-being, so through meditation and movement, which are very beneficial for us, both mentally and physically. So mind and body, spiritually, you feel connected in. So spirituality is about feeling, how we feel, how's your spirit? Oh, he's in high spirits, he's happy. Oh, he's really low, his spirit's really low. So how do you connect in with your spirit? Waiapa is about putting the earth first. So what it means is that mind, body, spirit happiness or wellness can only exist if the earth is well, if the very thing that provides for us. So when you look at things from a generational perspective, it's looking at indigenous wisdom that actually says the decisions we make today are for seven generations ahead. That's where we've lost our way. So everything from our consumerism, from, from our materialism, from everything, we need to be more mindful about it. The beautiful thing about Waiapa is it's non-judgmental. We don't tell people what they have to do. So we don't say that you all have to run out there and become vegetarians or vegans or, or walk everywhere or you know only have one pair of shoes or make sure. It's about people to just have a look at their life and see what you can do and what you're comfortable in doing, but challenge yourself every day. So if you look at my life four years ago, before I started really getting into IAPA, everyone say, oh, Jamie, big trouble, black fella, speaking his language, paying it up. I'd come into town, jump in my V8 car, I'd go and buy 15 suits for 20 pairs of shoes. My consumerism, my materialism was out of control. So when I looked in the mirror and I thought, 
my ancestors had one cloak. <laughs> they, they, only, they only ate what they needed. They took, like, so I started to have to align my, my, modern, my modern presence and existence. Yeah, okay, I'm not like my ancestors. I, I know white people are out there that have zero carbon footprint, which means that they actually are caring for country better than I am as an Aboriginal person. As a black fella, I was a bit ashamed of myself that I wasn't one even being mindful about it or thinking about it in that greater context. But I wasn't even really practicing it in some way. So it's that non-material culture that we talk about. It's our values and it's about our everyday actions of culture, not just you do a dance three times a year and that's my culture or I do an ADOC march. Your culture is everything that makes you up, makes you up. So WAPA is about getting not just black followers back to that, thinking because I think we've come away from that and there's a lot of reasons why the trauma you know I grew up with op shop clothes I was shamed up for wearing other kids clothes so when I got money what did I do I went and bought all brand new clothes I'm going to be the next you know and that's why I, I, my, my wardrobe now has just gone I wouldn't say backwards but I you know I put myself through three 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 gates do I do I need it quite often the answer is no I don't need it do I want it why do I want it? And if I can convince myself why I want it and that'll, it'll improve my life or give me something that I, um, you know, will make me enrich me, then I'll buy it. But I never used to do that. And I think that not just black followers, but I think that the population of the planet needs to get back to that. So Waiapa isn't just a black follower thing. It's a, it's a human thing. And it's about putting everyone. So imagine, I don't know, how many people doing Bikram yoga or yoga in the world? So imagine if they all looked after the earth in a really, really good way. That's what Waiapa is about. You know, Waiapa can be global. Doesn't matter where you're from, you can do Waiapa. Yep, a little black fella from Victoria put it together with a Canadian Welsh woman. You know, when she said to me, you know, when I went to her, said to her, went to Sarah and said, "Oh, help me get some money so I can start teaching these kids culture and I don't have to do it as a." as a um, you know, part-time thing, I want to do a full-time thing. She said, well, how are you going to get money for that? I said, you're going to write submissions to the government. And she started laughing and she said, well, I can do that, but it's not sustainable. We know that. What can you do that, that can actually bring in some sustainable income? You know, so why up, uh, I said, I'll do this thing. I suppose it's a bit like Aboriginal yoga or Tai Chi that I've been doing with these kids for about 15 years. The kids in the dance group used to come to the dance group, all that. I said, going to close their eyes, stand still, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about something and you're just going to sit there, you're not going to jump around, you're just going to do it. The eagle, the tree, the wind, feel yeah. it, feel country, connect to it. So I was doing it before I was even doing it. And then she just come along and said, that's a full-blown modality. That's, that's a, you know, that's, that's, that's something that people are looking for, that earth connection. And it's, and it's, and it's, I suppose it's also permission. And, and it's not about saying that people that come into this space are traditional owners or traditional custodians, but they need to be stewards. They need to care for this place. Because we as 3% of the population can't look after Australia by ourselves. There's no way we can look after the planet by ourselves. So people who come into the space need to be stewards. They, they actually need to be caretakers. You know, not in a traditional sense, because they don't have that genealogical connection just like you and me we can we can even though we're black fellows on country you know we're still visitors here we're still guests we're still occupants so but we still need to respect this land you know only carolyn only dice you know bundles law 
look after the land, look after the children. How are we doing that? How are we looking after? When you walked in with a keep cup, I'm like, yes, brother, got a keep cup. Imagine if everyone on the planet bought a keep cup. Yeah? Usually I've got a backpack with me. I decided not to bring it today. It's got a water bottle, a keep cup. Um, it's got bamboo knife, fork and spoon and bamboo chopsticks. And I've got a middle straw. Mm. If everyone on the planet carried a backpack around with those four things, the world would be a different place. And that's what Wayapa teaches. So if I can get people to actually slow their mind down through movement, they get benefits from it and connect to their environment, they'll feel like they're more, they feel like they have a responsibility to care for it. So it's about them actually going off into their world, their day, and being Wayapa every day. So it's not just a get up and do a 25 minute Wayapa practice and roll your Wayapa mat up and take your Wayapa pants off and go off and consume like, like there's no tomorrow, because there is a tomorrow. There won't be if we keep consuming the way we are. So Wayapa is about that mindfulness of every day. So through that meditation, through that mindfulness, through that connection to a particular place on the planet. So when I say to people, even though you're living in Melbourne and you go to your special place in your mind, you want that place to be well. Make this place well here because that is connected with that place. So if this place is well, then your place will be well because the earth is one organism. It's all interconnected. So what's happening in Japan with Fukushima, that's affecting us. That's all that radiation in the water, in the oceans, with the fish, the fish swimmer over in the Port Phillip Bay, catch them, three-eyed fish, you know, Simpsons all over. We're a global village now. We need something that's global. And that's what we believe that Wayapa is. What I find interesting is, it seems very hippie, speaking from you know, being a, a bit of a undercover hippie myself. I find it interesting that balance of, I guess, the Aboriginal connection to the earth and indigenous messages there. But I find that I'm one of these like rare Aboriginal hippie and characters. And you shouldn't be, though. That's the, the irony of it is, is that that's who our ancestors were without even giving them a label. That's, that's the irony of it. That's the sad thing about westernisation and, and, and invasion and, and colonialism is that we, we have taken on often the worst part of them. You know, some of our mob just are so disconnected. They're so disconnected. They walk around talking culture, but they're disconnected. So yeah, when people like you and me start to go, you know, and that's why every, every show is like, um, look at Black Force, you know, look at comedy, you know, Black Comedy, Black Force. Oh, look, look at Kale in the fridge. You know, where's the mission food? Well, I'm, that's drink, what they're I'm seeing. drinking a soy coffee here. <laughs> there you go, there so. you go. But, but this is the thing, this is the thing. What, you know, because, you know, and, and I guess it is that shift, but it's not just, and it is, and it, and it is and it isn't a black fella thing because, and, and that's why, you know, I'm really big on some of the social media little memes, you know, this isn't a hippie thing, this is, this is a survival thing. And we've got to stop thinking about the now. Our ancestors made concessions for, for, t for seven generations ahead. So when I look at a black fella and I say, are you creating a space that's healthy seven generations ahead and that you know the, the, I, I, I was the biggest you know I, I was the biggest I suppose like I said I was the biggest hypocrite I, I, I never thought about it never did it but what I say to people and I've got people saying to me so what does that mean what does that mean do I have to give up this or do I have to give up my V8 and I said no you don't oh but but you did I said yeah but you're not me this is what Wayapa this is why you're gonna love Wayapa because Wayapa isn't telling you to become a vegan 
Wiper isn't telling you to sell your V8 car. Wiper is telling you to do what you can do. If you're mindful, then you're going to make decisions and choices. When you go to a restaurant and that and you order a, a Coke or a JD and Coke or a mineral water, say to them, no straw, thanks. Why? I said straws are the biggest polluters of this ocean, of our planet. If you, you one straw, to say no. Oh, but that won't do nothing. Have you heard of the old saying, the straw that broke the camel's back? Oh yeah, same thing. Just say no straw. Think about all, if every time you say no straw throughout your whole life, what that will, what, will, what that will do. Oh, okay. Do what you can do. That's what I say. Do what you can do, but be mindful that you're doing it. That's the secret. Yeah, I just imagine trying to tell my cousins to do something like that. And Put it in a traditional context. Mm. That's what I keep doing. That's why, that's, why, that's why I can make change with, you know, um, with family violence. Our, our, our fellas never did it. You're black follow or white? That's always a little joke within the group. You're black follow or white? You say you are, but your actions are. You know, be, be mindful about it. And, and it is, and, it, and it is, it's probably more challenging some of our own mob. Like I said, I know a heap of white people out there living more respectfully for, for country than a lot of black followers. And a lot of white people out there living better than me. But again, it's not about judging. So when I don't judge any of my family members that, that, that want to have a single use. And it's really funny when we do the white because people often come in with a, a single use plastic bottle. You know, and I tell a story about this lady who worked in a law firm down in opposite Federation Square. She said, after she did a six week course of us, after the second week she goes, I went to work and looked at in our, our cafe and she said, there's a thousand employees in that office space and on average we use probably, we have three cups of coffee a day in disposable cups. She did some numbers, not just from, from a usage perspective, she said, that's what's that, 3,000 cups a day? 15,000 cups a week. 780,000 disposable coffee cups in one calendar year in her office block. Mm. She, did, she, she costed up how much that was, was costing the company. She went to her boss and said, if you buy us all a keep cup with your logo on it, you will save $4,000. It is half the amount of money that you're paying on coffee cups. He's like, what? Here's the numbers. Here, take my money, he said. Because she made that connection. The things, I think the biggest killer is, is convenience. That's the biggest killer, is convenience. But then it doesn't become convenient. Me carrying a backpack around is not inconvenient. It's easy as. It's actually more convenient. I can actually take some more stuff. It's not, it's not cumbersome, you know? It's not, you know? And I put it back into context. I always go back to ancestors. Blackfellas can't argue with that. I always say, you're proud, of, you're proud of your heritage? You're proud of where we come from? You're proud of your ancestors? Yeah, yeah, well, we need to be more aligned with them. Even if it's a little bit, put yourself through those three gates. Do I need it? Do I want it? Why do I want it? And I, I, I used to be the most, I'd walk through a shopping mall, oh, look at that jumper, just like that. I'd wear it once or twice, leave it there, I'd give it to a cousin or give it to the op shop. I've recycled. Not knowing, that's one of the biggest jokes going around. I see a lot of people saying, oh, I'll give all my, I'll give all my clothes to the poor. They don't want clothes. <laughs> you know, all these clothes going over to, to third world countries. The mob don't want clothes. They want infrastructure. They want wells. They want electricity. They want, you know, don't send them your clothes. <laughs> Blackfellas walk around in poverty in $1,000 suits. Because someone in California is, is going minimalistic. You know, 
So it's about it's about saying that's good, but you know, recycle it or upcycle it or share it or whatever. I think that's good that people are thinking about that. But then don't just continually just keep going and consuming and then just giving it away. You know, if you if you take something away, make it go like that. My my wardrobe's going like fifth of the size. Basically, it's a pair of tracksuits and a white upper top these days, which is not good for the waistline. You're wearing tracksuits all the time, and again, I shouldn't be eating that much. I don't need to eat that much. You know, we used to always have a thing. Oh, I had a kilo of steak. You know, we only need 200 or 150, but it was manly to eat a kilo of steak. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's how you look at it. You know, again, changing your concepts. Eat kangaroo. Why? It's better for the environment. You know, not as much emissions. They have less impact on the earth. You know, they farm sustainably, eat wild caught fish in small, you know, like, you know, it's about saying just, just think about your consumerism in both what you eat and what you buy. You know, yeah. doesn't mean that you have to be full, full blown hippie or greenie. Yeah. It's about being earth mindfulness. Well, one of the big phrases that I hear around community is decolonize and it seems to be it's a great buzzword yeah. who's doing it yeah. who's doing it I've, I've, i'll be straight up i've i stopped social drinking a long time ago i used to self-medicate with alcohol up until probably three years ago with depression and stuff that the minute i give it away i felt a lot better i got in a much better headspace you know things started to really open up because i was more awake to the possibilities and the, i was always ready for the next opportunity as opposed to feeling sorry for myself or beating myself up or going into a, a, a cloud and, and just, just numbing that out. So absolutely decolonizing your diet. You know, this, I have people go, I'm waiting for my own, you know, I'm waiting for the government to give me my self-determination. There's a little bit of truth to that, but at the end of the day, only you can do that. You know, I see a lot of people go, oh, we're gonna die, you know, we're, we're, gonna, we're all gonna die at 60, but who determines that? Government don't determine it. You get to buy your food. Now, one of the things we say in my app is say, we ask people the question, who actually buys organic food here? Nah, I don't buy that. Why not? That's too dear. Show me your shopping trolley. Show me your shopping docket. What do you want to see that for? Well, you tell them you can't afford it. Oh, you got chips, Coke, biscuits. Do you need that? No. Okay, give me an example. Uh, a bag of Coles carrots, $2 for the Coles ones, $6.50 for the organic ones. That's four bucks. Add that all up. I had a, I had a, I had a lady say to me one time, nah, TDNF, can't thing. I said, aren't, aren't, you like a glass of wine, eh? She said, yeah. I said, so on that proviso, you buy the cheapest, nastiest wine you can go and buy. No, why not? Give you a headache, make you crook. I said, that's what that food's doing. You know, it's all perspective, it's all where you put it, mm. you know. So for me, getting people to decolonize is those concepts, you know. Don't buy into all the, you know, the, the materialism. You know, imagine if one of the, you know, one of the things that we say is that we've got an app on our phone called Good On You, right? Good On You. And it actually, you put in a brand of clothing and it actually rates the company on whether it's good for the environment whether it's good on animals or good for their employees, out of five. I always say to kids, what shoes do you buy? I look around, Nike or Adidas? Oh, it depends, or oh, Air Jordans, Air Nike, or I say, who's best for the environment? I go, I don't know. Well, you're a black fellow, aren't you? What do you mean? 
Oh, don't you care about who's actually destroying the environment or not? Oh, well, who's better for the environment? They don't know. I didn't know until two years ago. <laughs> Adidas, hands down, four out of five stars. Nike, well, only one at one stage, they're up to two. There's a, there's a button on there you can press that sends a, uh, an email to their head office that says, I'm not buying your stuff no more because you're, you're destroying the planet or you're not paying your workers. I said, imagine this, head office in Oregon, Portland. They got a number on the board. Shit, we're getting all these emails saying people are not buying their stuff because it's not good for the environment. Okay, when it reaches a million emails, we'll do something about it. I said, you pressing that button, it might be the millionth email. You don't know, but it might be. That's where you create change. Mm. You're chopping consciously stuff. So you talk about decolonization. Let's take away the materialism. Let's take away the things that are, that are, that are actually killing us. The sugars, the alcohols. The, 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 that, that's probably the biggest thing is, is the, the, the concept of, that we're oppressed. Oppression, it does exist physically in particular forms, but the biggest form of oppression is between our ears because we believe it. So the enemy doesn't need to, to hurt us physically. They'll do that through our mind. Because if your mind's sick, your body will be sick. So whilst you buy into that concept, then they win. Oh. The, system, the system wins. You know, if you buy into that, you're oppressed, you will be. It's a classic example. Henry Ford said it. If you, if, you can, if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. So if you think you're oppressed or you don't think you're oppressed, you're right. But is there something in the fact that we do have quite an uphill battle, or I guess a lot of us, in finding our way in the Western world, particularly if in regards to culture and wanting to be more in touch with traditional ways or the land and certain Aboriginal values, does that not conflict a little bit with the world that we're living in and then being able to make our way and be successful. And yeah, give me, give me an example. Give me an example and I'll, and I'll try and give you a, a way and navigate a way around it. In my life I've speared three kangaroos with a spear, a mumra and a bundi. Mm. There, there's a supposed law that says I can't do that, but I did it. Have I been locked up and arrested for it? No. Why? Because I don't make a big deal out of it. I do it culturally, ceremonially. That you know, it's, what's what's the old saying? It's not illegal until you get caught. You know, like there's this, this conversation around. Obviously, I wouldn't walk out into a nature park and bundi a kangaroo in front of a heap of tourists or white people. Hmm. That's, and that's not respectful anyway, because that kangaroo's been lulled into a false sense of security. There's no fairness in that. I'll go out into the bush where the kangaroos are wild and they're on the alert. You know, there's no, that's, that's, that's when it's fair. You know, they're not in a wildlife reserve getting hand fed. That's, that's, that's not respectful. Um, yeah, look, a lot of the land has been stolen. Absolutely. Um, a lot of our families don't have the opportunities to, to get access to that land or even in a, in a modern day concept, an economical um, um, opportunity. But, but again, you know, you've got it. You've got it. For me, this is, this is how I rationalise it all in my mind to go forward. And not limiting myself to things um, in relation to, you know, for every person that says, when, when I used to say to myself, I can't do that. And I, 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 was, I, had, I had some really great people who say, why? Why can't you do that? I just can't. Oh, but they can do it. Yeah, but they're good. They're better than me. No, they're not. We're all born the same. I mean, I think you've got some great examples. Look at Lydia. 
They never say you can't do anything. You know, yes, there was, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger currently can't be the, the President of the United States because of you have to be a born citizen to do that. Barack Obama was an African-American. You know, they say that, I mean, uh, that, that, you know, they, they, I mean, that's great. But when a Native American actually becomes president, I think that'll be amazing because they are the original people of their land. Yeah, it was great that an African-American became, wasn't a, a, the, whole, the white supremacist, you know, aristocracy that, that, that was there. It was replaced by a black man. So, and it was, it's funny, I was watching that movie Barbershop 3, and that, that's, that's very conversational in relation to that. You know, the Indian guy working in there, and they're all saying to him, the African-American saying, shut up, you're from India, you can't even say nothing. Yeah, but I'm, but no, no, you're black, but you're not black. You know, like, you, your parents come here, but, you know, we were slaves, and, you know, and, but, but we were refugees, but, you know, we were chased out of it. Yeah, so it's a great conversation. It's quite unlike the other barbershops, but, you know, it was so great. And he, the Indian guy said, you guys have got the... You've got you've got a black guy. He's the boss of the whole country. This is the time to be black, yeah. But you're out there shooting each other. Yeah, there are white coppers shooting black people. But he said there's more black people shooting black people than white coppers shooting black people. That's that's what you need to get upset about. Mm. That's what you need to change. Black lives matter. Then stop killing each other. Yeah, the coppers definitely shouldn't be doing it. But look at what you're contributing to it yourself. And I think that's what you say about the decolonisational thing. So when people say to me, you can't, or when I say to myself, I can't, you know, I say to myself, I can't stop drinking. Of course I could. I just didn't want it. I chose to want to. You know, this one guy, Russell, said to me, Are you, you've got a million dollar idea here. I can't be a millionaire. <laughs> why not? He goes, why not? I said, shame, I don't want that much money. He said, well, give it away. Give it, give it to things that you, you want a foundation, don't you? Employ people with it. Why can't you be a millionaire? Who says? Having money doesn't make you less of a black fella. I hear that all the time. Unfortunately, our own mob think that poverty is what defines our Aboriginality. Hmm. I say to her, my mum's white. She lives in a mouldy old caravan on the Mitchell River. She's happy. Is she, make, is she more black fella than me? No. I'll tell you what makes me wild, uh, people just accepting that Devon and KFC is black fella food. I know, oh. I know. And that's what I was saying to you about that, that show Black Force. Yeah. You know, that, that, they, that reinforces the stereotype, which then in turn is killing us. Hmm. Give your kids white bread and dev, fried Devon, Devon for breakfast. I don't get me wrong, I love a piece of fried Devon, I just don't eat it every day. I'm very, even now that I know what's in it, I only eat even less. Hmm. But yeah, I, I agree. What, what we deem as traditional food now, I, I met a lot of black fellas that don't that, that like, they want eat kangaroo. <laughs> like, no, nah, that's your game, me brats. <laughs> it's yeah, right. like, that's your black fella food. Nah, Devon and white bread is, that's your mission food. That's your oppression food. Mm. I want to decolonize, decolonize that shit, you know, like that's, and, and again, no, it's about not judging. It's about understanding that people are in a particular place and space. You know, I had a cousin say to me, I look at you, you think you're better than me. You think you're this. I said, no, I'm not better than you, bros. So I'm just different than you. I'm just different. I'm not going to sit here and 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 drink every day on on car, on cars and, and 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 I'm not going to do that. I said, yeah, I'll do it occasionally, or you know, I said, yeah, yeah at times I'll get right down. But I said, but I'm I'm getting up out of the gutter. I'm getting up out of the couch, and I'm I'm going to keep marching forward. I said because you know it's not about being better than you. It's just being different. I have different values. You know, I. I I, I refuse to be, I, I refuse to have, I have overt racism upset me. It doesn't upset me. That's what I say to people. 
the minute you free yourself on that anger, I could be racially vilified. I suppose the most important thing was for me was when I was playing footy, when I was about 14, 13, 14, I was getting, yeah, hey, coon, you bung, you nigger, you know, I used to go home upset, my uncle would say, you know, he, he one day give me a chain. I'm like, what, you want me to flog him with his chain? He said, no, nah. he said, that's to remind them of where their ancestors come from. So he said, you're a proud people. Why, why, why are you letting it upset you? How do you play footy when they, when they say that? No, I don't play shit. That's what they want. They got you. They got you. You played right into them. So when I started to acknowledge their racist taunts, and it never affected me, they started to say, you're not even a black fella. You're half white. You're more white than black. So they start, it's all that power and oppression stuff. So if you buy into it by letting it affect you, you know, I acknowledge that. Yeah, I am, I am black. I am white. So, that's who I am. I can't change it. I didn't get to construct my mum and dad having that act. I'm the result of it. Here's what it is. And the minute you let that go, you take it back. You take that presence back. I had a man, had a man come to men's group the other night, going off his head. My missus going, like, she's calling me a shit father and I had her guts and blah, blah. I said, what? what? Calm down, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. I said, why are you gonna do that? Then you won't see your kids. Oh, she said, I said, well, you know, I looked at him, I said, well, are you a shit father? And he went, what? I said, well, are you? She's calling you a shit father. Are you a shit father? Are you calling me a shit father? He said, I said, no, I'm asking you a question. Uh, why did she say you were a shit dad? Ah, oh, well, I, I, I did say I was going to pick him up the last weekend. And I, I said, so you rang and told him that you couldn't pick him up? No, no, I didn't do this. And I, I said, that's pretty shit. <laughs> he looked at me and goes, yeah, that's pretty shit. I said, that's a shit act. You're not a shit father. There's a difference. I said, but you can change that. So it's all perspective, you know. So when someone used to say stuff about me, I look in the mirror and go, well, is there any truth to it? Often there was. You know, it's an old saying, the truth hurts. You know. So how did you come about this mindset? I guess you were talking earlier about how you had a bit of a traumatic childhood. Where did you get the, the inspiration or the wisdom to turn things around for yourself? Look, there was, there's, there was all, all, all parts, you know, um, there was a really great, uh, great lesson that I learnt was I used to, used to make a lot of excuses and say I made a mistake and an elder said to me, it's not a mistake, you, you, you've made this before, you don't make a mistake twice, second time it's a choice, he said you've made a shit choice and that, that really empowered me because it empowered me to, to know the difference between a mistake and a choice. And I still made a lot of shit, shit choices in my life after that. And a lot of the mistakes, you know, they, they affected some people who were really close to me. And, and, and it was more about my own self, really. Um, it was more about if I can live in the very best possible version of myself, then that's all, I have to, that's, that's all that should matter. There's a really great saying that you can lie to everybody else in the world, but don't lie to yourself. And the minute I stopped lying to myself or about making excuses or copping out or saying I can't, taking those things out of my vocabulary, out of my mindset, my whole, my whole life shifted. It shifted. Um, and, you know, 
I, 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 there was always these things, you know, and it's the same as of saying, you know, there's no such thing as a bad person. It's only bad behaviour. Because there's lots of good things about those people. Or there's lots of, you know, really good points about those people. But at times, people often act badly. You ask women in domestic violence situations, they, they, they don't not love the man. They just hate the behaviour. I get that. That's why a lot of women stay in those relationships, because they actually love the guy when he's really well. But when he's not, they hate that. So I get that. And it's the same, you know, so it's about when I looked at myself and go, on, on the whole, I'm a good guy. But, geez, at times, I, I'm really shit at some things. And it was about just wanting to be the best version of myself, I guess. And, yeah, probably three years ago, I had a really a defining moment in my life where I was just like, I just can't keep doing and living like this. Not for anyone else around me, yes. But if I live the best possible version of myself for me, the people around me will benefit from that. So when you, when you, when you stop doing things for other people and start doing them for yourself, that alignment of who you, the best possible version of you is, you know, everyone benefits from that. I think that for me that was the, the defining moment that you know I was there was a lot of things that I was doing for the most part of it I was living respectfully and responsibly and, and accountably but there were times that I weren't and they, were, they weren't all the time they were just little times and it was like no what, what does the best version of yourself look like it means that every decision I make is is going to be for the best result for me so when someone is saying something shit about me out there in community I have to look in the mirror and say, well, is that me? And most of the time it was. You know? I sort of say to people, if I've upset you or offended you, just, just tell me to my face what it was that I did. Because I'll do one of two things. I'll either apologise and say, no, 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 I didn't say that, or that's taken out of context. Or I'll say, no, that's what I really feel, and that's how I am. And if that upsets you, I'm sorry. But not sorry. Mm -hmm. You know? Just give me the opportunity to either clarify it, verify it, or or, de or, or debunk it. Yep. You know, that that's that that's about getting rid of that lateral violence stuff too. You know, I think that's I mean that's a whole other level of conversation about it. But stopping it, you know, stopping that the bullshit talk. Yep. So just one more thing before I let you go. Yep. What are ways that you've found in bringing culture and bringing language to people that has been a success or can you also see other potential in perhaps bringing language and song into other aspects of today's life? Absolutely, Russ, and I think it's vitally important. And, you know, and that's why, you know, when you have people like you know, Yossi, you know, the Yossi Indie band, you know, the people like Ramal and all that get up and sing in language. That's, that's the way it should be. It's like I said about the Māori people, you know, Pākehā speak Māori language. That's the way it should be. If you ask any Aboriginal person, when Cookie come here with his 13 boats, surely when they hit the shores, you would have hoped that they would have actually respectfully learnt all the, the local culture, yeah? Surely, that's what Blackfellas would want. Because what, what space would we be in now if that's what happened back then? So why can't we do that now? Yeah, it's all 229 years a bit later, but surely. But again, I, you know, I say it that, you know, I, I understand where a lot of the, there's a lot of apprehension about it. You know, I mean, I, I wrote a song that I teach everybody that I meet. That's in Granite, and it's about clapping your hands to wake up the earth. And it's just a little simple song, it's a little kid's song. 
It's an adult song, and I teach it. And I say, when you're out on country, especially when you go to Gippsland, sing that song. That's, that's, that's my gift to you, in my language. If people ask you, oh, where are you getting some from? You tell them. You tell them where you got it from. So when I say to people, I, I've got permission from Uncle Rob, from Uncle Banjo, from Uncle Henry, from Uncle Ivan, all those elders have said to me, teach our culture, because that's what will keep us strong. When people bag me, they bag in them men too. You don't do that. <laughs> you know, so it's, I understand. There's a lot of, I, I, and, I, and I do get, I, I do understand why black are like that. I do understand why a mob are like that. It's ours, it's ours, it's ours. I understand that. The internet lost its mind. Oh, I watched that, that thing about that white woman playing a didgeridoo, Yiriki. And the old, that old fellow from Arnhem Land came out and said, that's all right. Mm. Black fellas lost their mind. What are you doing? What are you saying? He said, it's out of context. It's not, you know, Junie Mills said the other day, uh, sorry, um, Junie's sister, um, Ellie, said the other day, I, I play clapsticks up on stage. Someone asked about clapsticks, can women play clapsticks? And of course, black fellas are all different all over Australia. You know, on the Aboriginal page, uh, um, Ellie got up and said, oh, I, I played on stage, but I never played in a ceremonial context. But here in Victoria, they did. They play possum skin, drums and clapsticks. You know? Surely you would want... Surely, like you said, why are we letting now? You know, surely if, if more people were doing Blackfella stuff, we wouldn't be looking at other cultures. You know, rap music. I was saying before about... Imagine if them basketball players actually said, I'm not going to wear Nike. Take your $40 million contract, I don't want it. I'll take the $20 million one without it ass. Because they're looking after the planet. Imagine that. And every kid went around buying Adidas. Imagine if, if you know, again, it's about accountability. My fellow's coming up speaking language to you, and you don't know it, how you feel. You know, there's a little bit, there's shame and guilt in that. Because they actually learn, they actually more passionate about your culture than you. Mm. So that's accountability stuff. So it's our job to make sure, yeah, we gotta learn it first, but, but surely that goes hand in hand. So I think that the, the, the Thornbury Primary School with that non-Wurrung person teaching Wurrung language to those white kids is amazing. You know? If someone comes up, you know, I got home on country there, Neil Murray, Shane Howard singing in Pequodong and, and Chaparong. Good on them. I don't go, hey, yeah, white fella, you should be singing my language. Go for it. Then I need to go and study up what they're singing about. Mm. Not tell them you can't sing that. That's how I see it. And, and you talk to 20 black followers, you might get 10 answers the same as me, 10 answers different than me, you might give 19 answers different than me and just me, I don't know. But to me, it's about, you know, if, if, if people actually, like I said, I always use the Māori the example with the Pākehās. I mean, not every white Pākehā person respects Māori culture. I get that. But you look at it in a, in a national context. A classic example, and I won't mention any names, but we were teaching the, the, the war cry to the Richmond boys. A couple of them said, oh, I can't do that, it's against my religion. I said, yeah, but... Aaron said, yeah, but I see them doing the haka on the footy season trip. So why can't they do this? Yeah, why can't you do that? Uh, uh, what, because black fella, you know, be respectful. We want you, we're giving you something, do it. Mm. <laughs> you know, wouldn't it be good seeing the Richmond Football Club embedded in their culture doing the war cry? 
like the haka. The Maoris want them pakia doing that dance. You know, surely we want that in some way. So there's obviously things that they can have and things that they can't have. It's the same thing about, yep, yeah, you can come and do a crobbery with me on my country, I'll paint you up. But you can't do it when you leave here. You can't go and bust down the street and do it. You know, so, you know, there's, you know, I think they're good robust conversations, but you know, it's the same as sounds. We do some stuff with some of the Sudanese. I always teach the boys, language just isn't a spoken word, language is what comes out of your mouth, it's every energy, it's everything. So all them sounds that we make, that's language, that's this expression, that's your connection, that's that. I teach the kids that, don't know language there's, you make up a whole song just doing that, you know. So that's why it's really funny that watching that, that kid, that Wishtaka Bungie, he, he puts on that... Um, he puts on that one with Beyonce and Bruno. Hey, they're one, eight, three quarter Aboriginal. Look at them up there. And they're up there. And, you know, they're doing a shake leg, you know. Like, they probably don't know us the shake leg. But, you know, they're up there dancing at the Super Bowl. You know, doing that. He's doing the dubbing and the, you know, the soundtrack. <laughs> Funny, you know. So who is this, Bush Tucker? Bush Tucker Bungie. Uh, he's a young Aboriginal fellow from up, up, up South Coast area. He's, yeah, he's pretty full on. He's a funny kid. He's... He's one of those viral video vloggers that. Oh right, he's, he's got like a YouTube channel. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. He does, he does, he does two things. He, he does all these sort of different uh, personas, but yeah, he, that was just one example that that he was basically saying is that like they, they dance like us, mm. you know, dance and you know, and there's some of the songs that are out lately. You know, they have you know, the song is out recently. Like they're making they're making blackpool sounds and they're like, they you know like I can't even think of that it was a Katy Perry song and trying to collaborate with someone said that sounds like a black fella <laughs> but then there's that whole thing about cultural appropriation absolutely and so there's known cultural appropriation and there's there's not known a cultural appropriation so if you fully know that that's not that's a cultural thing and it's, it's sacred and you fully know that but i'm sure there is in situations and examples around the world where there's similarities amongst cultures where it's just is the same and if you know, you can't say that. Oh, we did it before you, or you did it before us. But yeah, I think cultural appropriation is a really good conversation to have because it's done without permission, or it's done with no knowledge that that something is sacred. I mean, that's what you know—the whole Paddy Mills stuff that happened. You know, with his non-Aboriginal partner doing those that, that whole clothing line with prints from the, the islands. You know, people going crazy about that. You know, and. Paddy, what are you doing? Letting your memory do that, you know? And like, I don't know the intricacies of that story, but again, it's, you know, the conversation and cultural appropriation, mm. you know? And that's something that, that obviously that's a conversation that they have to have yeah. with their elders and his elders and his community about whether she should or shouldn't be doing that. Mm. Um, but yeah, and, and I think that there's, yeah, definitely, it's like, it's a bit like, um, you know, it's sometimes you don't know what you don't know. But when you know it and you do it, then that's definitely, you know, it's like I say about, um, I could try to give you an example, you know, people go, I didn't know that. It's like, what, you didn't know that? You haven't been taught that? You don't, no, I haven't. Okay, well now that you know, don't be ignorant. Mm. You know, the word ignorant, to me, I don't know if it's the true essence of the word, there's the word ignore in there. So to be ignorant is that you actually know it, but you're ignoring it. Yeah. But if you don't know it and you do it, okay, 
now that you know it, don't ignore it. Don't be ignorant. Yeah. So don't say that. I was at a meeting yesterday. The guy goes, oh, you don't even have to do it in English. You can speak it in your native tongue. I'm like, what? <laughs> That's so 1800s. <laughs> You didn't even say, it's like the word Aborigines, you know, like people, my just don't like that word because the connotations of the Aborigines were shot or the Aborigines were poisoned or mm. we, we were here before the, you know, like it's, you know, there's all those little little nuances that, you know, that people go, oh, I didn't know that offended you. Well, you know now, don't use it. Yeah. You know, um, so yeah, and then when I continue to use it, you know, you need to be ignorant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, well, we better get out of the yes, sun. Yes, better get out of the sun. Thanks so much for having me on. No worries, bros. And Good luck uh, with it all. Oh, yeah. So uh, if people want to get in touch with you for Waiapa. Yep. So um, all the socials, but yeah, waiapawerik.com uh, or waiapa.com is our website. W-A-Y-A-P-A.com is our website. If you put in waiapawerik.com, you'll get it. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, we've got now to a point where people become waiapa instructors. You know, we're providing economic sustainability within the community. Um, we give away a free scholarship every every time we do it. We want to give back to the community, so we give a, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person the opportunity to get a to get a scholarship. Um, you know, and as things start to, to expand, we'll you know we've we've found other avenues to to give scholarships to people because we want people to access it. But again, you know, WAP is not just for Aboriginal people. You know, the, the practice itself, the sharing of the connectedness of the planet is, is for non-Aboriginal people too. So I think there's nearly a 51-49 ratio of Aboriginal people to non-Aboriginal people that are instructors. We're up to 39 instructors now. Yeah, so wow. 39 qualified instructors. We've had one of our instructors do a WIAPA session in Bali. They've done an international gig before me. Um, you know, so people can go off and start their own small business, you know, and now, people always say, you know, the, one of the biggest things was people go, oh, well, what percentage do you take of what I make? And I say, nothing. They go, what? So if you want to go and make $300,000 a year being a WIAP instructor, I don't take a cent of that. And you have to pay a 200 buck licensing fee every year, that's it. You know, we're not like other modalities where you actually pay a percentage of your income. We don't want that. We want people to just own, you know, it's yours. Mm -hmm. Go off and do what you want. Just share the word, save the planet. Yep. Save the generations.